Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What? Oh my goodness. Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. There's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind, lined with shelves, cluttered with proof. Huh, a rock. This could be a meteorite. Oh, it's got some strange green goo on the inside. I'll just leave that there. Moldy old birthday cake. And right beside it, an old poster. Authorized personnel only. U.S. government quarantine station. Yeesh. A photo of the president rolling up his sleeve, getting a shot. This place, this evidence room, stores the facts that matter, and matters of fact. It lies in a time between now and then, in the long shadow of doubt. The sign on the door reads, The Last Archive. Step across the threshold to the Apollo 11 command module, hurtling at 10,195 feet per second toward the surface of the Earth. Okay, Apollo 11 remains the prime story with the world awaiting uh, your landing today at about uh, 11.49 a.m. Houston time. July 24th, 1969. Four days after 650 million people on Earth watched Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. Now that looked like the easy part. The hard part would be getting the three astronauts home. Mission Control in Houston was updating the astronauts with the latest news from Earth and cracking a few jokes. Air Canada says it has accepted 2,300 reservations for flights to the moon in the past five days. It might be noted that more than 100 have been made by men for their mothers-in-law. I guess that's Houston trying to keep things light, because after all, the Apollo 11 astronauts were about to pierce the atmosphere at about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit and splash down into the ocean. Nashville, Tennessee now reports it is being flooded by moon songs. The song at the top of the bestsellers list this week is In the Year... 2525. I like to imagine to hear in my head NASA Command in Houston playing that song while guiding the astronauts' re-entry, preparing them for what's to come. In the year 2525, if man is still alive, if woman can survive. They may fall. 11 is Hornet, copy. 11 Hornet, watch your splash down here, over. Okay, uh, our space down here is our 
The Apollo 11 module splashed down into the Pacific Ocean, not too far from Hawaii, where the astronauts were to be retrieved by wading swimmers. This is where the story often ends. The astronauts safely returned to Earth, our world knit closer together. We went to the moon. They went to the moon. And they came back. But let that mission control tape roll just a few seconds longer, after splashdown, and things start to get a little strange. And the first astronaut has been scrubbed down, and now the, uh, the astronauts are scrubbing down the swimmer. Immediately after contact, the astronauts were scrubbed down by a swimmer, washed from head to toe, while floating in the middle of the ocean. Because NASA was worried about a moon plague. Nobody had ever been to the moon before, and NASA had to wonder, what if there was life there? Not aliens with big eyes and weird-shaped skulls, but bacteria, viruses. No one knew what the astronauts might bring back with them. So after the astronauts came back to Earth, they did something we today, in the age of masks and COVID tests, know all too well. They quarantined. The most extraordinary part of the Apollo 11 flight to the moon will start after they get back. The beginning of the most rigorous three weeks quarantine any human beings have ever had to endure. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know, how we used to know things, and why it seems lately as if we don't know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore. This episode picks up where our last one left off, the end of the moon mission. I think the Apollo mission is a rift in history, a hinge where everything changed, a fracture in time and space. We used to look at the stars and wonder. After Apollo, we'd seen space as something else, cold, lifeless, a vacuum. Or if there was life out there, it was dangerous. That splashdown led to waves of doubt, doubt about science, a wave we're still riding today, a tidal wave still crashing. When the astronauts landed safely on Earth, or at least in the ocean, President Richard Nixon celebrated. This is the greatest week in the history of the world since the creation. But the danger hadn't entirely passed. Even before the astronauts went to the moon, scientists had begun to plan for the risk, however small, that the astronauts might bring something back. Do you think there really is any chance of bringing back bags from the moon? Oh, it's an exceedingly unlikely event, indeed. Sure, it was exceedingly unlikely, but what if it did happen? And what if normal disinfectants couldn't kill it? What if medicine couldn't cure it? Scientists painted a picture frightening enough that NASA built the Lunar Receiving Laboratory in Houston, where the returning astronauts were whisked after splashdown to quarantine for 21 days. NASA kind of made a big show of it all. President Nixon waving to the astronauts. The curtains have been drawn. And there they are in the rear rear window. The curtains have been drawn. I love that. It's as if the window is a little theater. Today, people use the term hygiene theater to talk about the things we do to protect against coronavirus, when a lot of those things probably don't make any difference. Like a rental car agency that vacuums the car in front of you. Or a hotel with elevator operators who press the buttons with gloves on and then wipe down the buttons after each press anyway. Do these things really do anything to protect against COVID-19? Probably not. But it makes some people more comfortable with the risks they've already decided to take. Neil Armstrong celebrated his birthday in the quarantine tank. They had a cake and everything. The astronauts waved at their wives from behind plate glass. Everyone took the quarantine seriously. But it really was hygiene theater. I mean, after the splashdown as the module bobbed in the water, the astronauts inside had opened the hatch and let all the air out. And after the swimmer wiped the astronauts down, he threw the rag in the ocean. If there really had been a moon plague, we'd all be dead by now. Later, when people started claiming the whole mission had been a hoax, the quarantine was one of those fishy details that they fixated on. 
Why were the first astronauts held in quarantine so long after their first trip when most scientists agree that the moon is sterile and there's no chance of disease transmission? That's the queen of conspiracy, Mae Brussel, on her community radio show in 1977. Was it because they needed a period of reconditioning after the spurious trip, or could they not bear to face hordes of cheering people so soon after playing their role in this show on Earth? Seriously? Anyway, back to 1969. Covered by protective garments, these voyagers to and from the moon went into isolation. They will remain in this mobile quarantine facility while the... One person watching all this, the re-entry, the quarantine, was a 26-year-old recent medical school graduate, Michael Crichton. This guy, he was hard to miss. He was six foot nine. Crichton would go on to write some of the biggest bestsellers of the 20th century, books and films like Jurassic Park. He created the TV show ER. One of his less successful projects was Westworld, released as a film in 1973 that decades later became an HBO series. Pretty early in his prolific career, Crichton got invited onto late night TV, The Dick Cavett Show. My next guest is Michael Crichton. He's an unusual young man. During the four years that he spent at uh, medical school, he suddenly got the writing bug, wrote seven novels, a couple of movies, uh, and uh, became a doctor. Too, too. That writing bug. The writing bug, yes, they haven't cured that. No. Crichton got the writing bug at Harvard, where he was an English major. One time, he turned in an essay that had actually been written by George Orwell. When the professor gave him a B-, Crichton quit English and moved to anthropology. After graduation, he taught at Cambridge University, doing research on skulls from the British Museum. He went back to Harvard for medical school, but then he started thinking about writing seriously as a way to make some money. And my purpose was really to see if I could write something that the average reader could, could come away with a little information. Normally, books didn't take him long. But there was one story he wanted to write and couldn't quite crack. It was a story about a disease that came from space. He'd been poking at it for years, but it just felt implausible to him. Then, a while before the Apollo astronauts came crashing back down to Earth, word spread about NASA's plan for the quarantine. Crichton heard about it, and that's when everything clicked. If you haven't read The Andromeda Strain, it's a science fiction book about a giant hernia. <laughs> The Andromeda Strain is not about a giant hernia, but it is the book that truly launched Crichton as a best-selling author. And it did that by crystallizing all kinds of fears about science run amok. The Andromeda Strain opens with a government satellite called Scoop 7, crash landing in a town in Arizona. So far, so plausible. Satellites do fall to Earth. Crichton had done his research. Anyway, some scientists go to recover the satellite, only to find that nearly everyone in the town is dead. The scientists die too. It turns out the satellite was carrying a highly contagious pathogen from space, Andromeda. Michael Crichton is always at great timing. The novel came out two months before the Apollo 11 astronauts splashed down in the ocean. It was a blockbuster, even while Neil Armstrong and those guys were in quarantine eating Armstrong's birthday cake, Americans were devouring the Andromeda strain. Two years later, Universal released it as a movie. This is a recording. State your name and your message and hang up. Major Arthur Manchik, Scoop Mission Control A-12. We have evidence here on film of a natural death caused by Scoop 7 returning to Earth. Crichton wrote The Andromeda Strain like a piece of very learned science journalism. He filled the book with real facts. He even included a fake appendix and a fake bibliography. The makers of the movie took the cue. They set the film in an elaborate, scientifically plausible disease laboratory called Wildfire. An actual journal, Clinical Infectious Diseases, published an actual article calling Andromeda Strain the most significant, scientifically accurate, and prototypic film of its kind. Until now, Wildfire's been like a game. I never believed this could really happen. The point of the novel is that this really could happen. After the satellite crash lands on Earth, the government calls in five top scientists. They're moved to that secret lab, Wildfire, burrowed deep underground. They're meant to study Andromeda, to learn its secrets and how to stop it. What they discover, though, is that Andromeda isn't like a normal Earth organism. It's not a virus. It's not some kind of bacteria. It was exactly what Carl Sagan and other scientists had been so worried about. An entirely unknown alien organism 
potentially infecting all of us. Dividing and mutating at the same time? And nothing to stop it. Normal Earth checks and balances don't exist for it. In the Andromeda strain, scientists find themselves in a scenario where the laws of nature, centuries of scientific inquiry, are moot. That fear just radiates out of America in the late 1960s. The atom bomb, pollution, computers gone rogue. Crichton is a key to understanding this fear of the future. So I decided to call a Michael Crichton expert. So just backing up, can you tell us how you got interested in Michael Crichton? Did you read, you know, did you see Jurassic Park as a kid? Jurassic Park was, in fact, the first movie that I saw in the theater without parental supervision. Um, and I remember, um, you know, going to the theater and being like, I guess I'm not going to be a paleontologist because um, that career will be obsolete. Joanna Radin is an amazing historian of science at Yale. She's writing a book about Michael Crichton. In the course of studying post-war ideas about science, she started seeing Crichton everywhere, not just in science fiction, but interacting with and criticizing actual science and scientists. He goes to medical school um, and becomes disgruntled with what he observes as a culture that has embraced new technology but hasn't updated its morality, that they're not willing to or able to take seriously the consequences of what it's going to mean to manipulate life. Crichton was only a toddler when the atomic bombs fell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He grew up watching science change in the shadow of the bomb. Science, it seemed, had won the war, so the government began investing massively in research, and scientists had a lot of say in where the money went. They became close government advisors and popular heroes. In 1960, Time magazine named scientists, just scientists in general, the men of the year. Six years later, Time released an issue with the cover story, Is God Dead? The answer? Yeah, because now we have scientists. The U.S. government had spent $50 million on scientific research in 1939. In 1970, it spent almost $15 billion. Most of that was for the Department of Defense. MIT receives more than $100 million a year from the federal government to conduct research. Most of it relates to the waging of war. Scientists had the power of gods, and like gods, the things they did were often mysterious, secret, and a little menacing. The 1946 Atomic Energy Act had been introduced by a senator who called the bombing of Hiroshima the greatest event in world history since the birth of Jesus Christ, and treated atomic science as a kind of religious secret. You couldn't really be sure what scientists were doing, but chances were it had to do with war. And by Crichton's adulthood, the Vietnam War had called the worship of science into question, knocked the scientists off their plinths. All of this finds a place in the paranoid plot of the Andromeda strain. Crichton was very upset um, about that kind of secrecy. This is his hallmark. What he's so effective at doing is taking the kind of inchoate um, emotions about emerging science and technology and telling readers what they should be afraid of, what specifically. During the years Crichton was in college and medical school, his fellow students were afraid of the secrets being kept from them, the things their professors did in the name of national security. Students protested at universities across the country. They tried to hold their universities to account. The year Crichton finished Harvard Medical School, 1969, Harvard undergraduates occupied University Hall and kicked out the president and the deans. They clashed with police officers violently. On the day Crichton graduated, the mood was tense. This commencement is an atrocity. It is an obscenity. Our interested students do not lie in this tea party with these criminals, these Pusey's, Bennett's, and Rockefellers. It lies in fighting them in alliance with the people, and we should get out of here. NBC News reported that for the first time in Harvard's history, students walked out of their own graduation ceremony. Some threatened to burn their diplomas. I don't know if Michael Crichton walked out or not, but that tension, that skepticism of the establishment, and especially of the secrecy of government science, it's all over his work. In the Andromeda strain, most of the scientists don't even know the original purpose of that scoop satellite that came crashing back down to Earth. We don't know much more than when we got here. We know about scoop now. It's possible what scoop found was no accident. I suspect they were looking for the ultimate biological weapon. The Andromeda strain is about a world where the government pays scientists to develop weapons that could wipe out life on Earth. And it's all done in secret. 
At Harvard and MIT in 1969, when students found out the kind of work their professors were doing for the war in Vietnam, napalm, psychological warfare, they held protests and even staged mock trials. In the Andromeda strain, the scientists themselves come to realize what their work is really for. Wildfire was built for germ warfare. Wildfire and Scoop. You knew it! That's not true, Ruth. I learned about Scoop the same time you did. The purpose of Scoop was to find new biological weapons in outer space and then use wildfire to develop them. It stinks, though. You're blowing your tops. We have no proof. Another giant leap for mankind. I wish I could believe you. The Scoop satellite hadn't just accidentally brought home this terrible pathogen. It had been sent to search for possible biological weapons. Crichton was raising an alarm, and a lot of people shared his fears, not least because of all the revelations about chemical warfare in Vietnam. The year the Andromeda strain came out in theaters, Crichton published an op-ed in the New York Times, decrying scientific secrecy. He he believes that there are lessons from physics that life science life scientists should be learning, that they should be integrating um, an effort to deal with accountability and social responsibility into the mainstream of science. And he's upset because he sees that possibility slipping away. Mm-hmm. He wants to cultivate a humility and a self-reflection. Absolutely. In some ways, Crichton's critique caught on. Or at least public support for government-funded scientific research seemed to fall, which wasn't really a good thing. Gradually, the Apollo missions lost the public support. In 1972, NASA terminated the program. We went to the moon. We came back. And then we stayed home and confronted a different plague. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers Back on the road fast with Location Telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Michael Crichton's novel, The Andromeda Strain, came out in 1969. In 1976, another disease appeared to be in the air. It didn't come from space. It came, it seemed, from pigs. Joe brought it home from the office. He gave it to Betty and one of his kids and to Betty's mother. 
But Betty's mother went back to California the next day. On her way to the airport, she gave it to a cab driver, a ticket agent, and one of the charming stewardesses. At school, Joe's kid gave it to some other kids. And Mrs. Merrill got it and gave it to her husband. In California, Betty's mother gave it to her best friend, Dottie. But Dottie had a heart condition and she died. But before she died... This uncanny and really hard-to-listen-to public service announcement is part of a much-forgotten moment in public health history. The 1976 swine flu scare. If a swine flu epidemic comes, this is how it could spread. You'll want to be protected, especially if you're elderly or chronically ill. Get a shot of protection. The swine flu shot. The story begins just after New Year's Day, 1976. Fort Dix, an army base in New Jersey. The barracks filled up with new recruits. A couple weeks later, some of them started to get sick. It looked like the flu, a bad flu. People went to the hospital. One man died. Doctors from the Centers for Disease Control were sent samples of the virus. By mid-February, they'd run their tests. Four came back, positive for swine flu. Today, there is news of a new and potentially very dangerous influenza strain. Health officials say it may be related to the strain that killed so many people in 1918. In 1918, an influenza pandemic took the lives of 50 million people worldwide. That was a flu strain that jumped species and infected humans. So in 1976, swine flu wasn't a completely novel virus. But scientists believe if you hadn't been alive in 1918, you wouldn't have immunity. There's no vaccine for the new swine virus, but one could be developed if there's an epidemic. Antibody tests seem to indicate that as many as 500 recruits at Fort Dix had been infected by swine flu. It hadn't been detected outside the base yet, but it could be silently spreading. The head of the CDC, Dr. David Sensor, wanted a vaccine made, and he wanted as many Americans as possible to get it. He said it was unacceptable to plan for less than 100% coverage. He made his case, urgently, to President Gerald Ford. Implementing this vaccination program would cost $134 million. But without it, Ford's advisors projected that as many as a million Americans could die from the flu in 1976 alone. Ford faced two bad options. He would look terrible if he spent the money and no pandemic came. If he didn't pull the trigger and the pandemic did come he would look even worse. And in 1976, he was facing an election. I am asking each and every American to make certain he or she receives an inoculation this fall. The facts that have been presented to me in the last few days have come from many of the best medical minds in this country. Ford approved the massive inoculation budget. The vaccine was to be grown in chicken eggs. The Secretary of Agriculture got involved, telling everyone, the roosters of America are ready to do their duty. (coughs) Pretty much immediately, though, a lot of Americans were suspicious of the national vaccine plan. As you know if you listen to the first season of The Last Archive, Americans have historically always been suspicious of national vaccine plans. Also, think about Ford's awkward position. He'd become president in 1974 when Nixon resigned. And then, despite all the criminality the Watergate hearings had exposed, Ford had pardoned Nixon. Some people thought this vaccine program looked more political than scientific, as if either Ford were getting pressured by the scientists or else he was pressuring the scientists to make him look good. The administration's plan to inoculate nearly everybody against swine flu is in trouble. Quickly, things got hairy. Legal battles very nearly held up the whole vaccination project. Then, when the vaccines were finally rolled out, it all went to hell. Now 4,000 Americans are claiming damages from Uncle Sam amounting to three and a half billion dollars because of what happened when they took that shot. That's from a 60 Minutes investigation that came out a few years later. In 1976, the government had mobilized the country with ads urging Americans to roll up your sleeves. Millions had obliged. But then came reports that a small number of people who were vaccinated had developed something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, a sort of paralysis. In that 60 Minutes documentary, Mike Wallace grilled now ex-CDC head David Sensor 
about how much the public knew about the risks. You didn't feel it was necessary to tell the people that information? Uh, I think that uh, over the, the years we have tried to inform the American people as, as fully as possible. It really did look as though the government had been lying, even though it hadn't. But the government had another problem. It turned out that the virus never spread past the army base. There was no swine flu pandemic. This, of course, wasn't really a problem. It was a good thing. It was a great thing. But it did make the government look terrible. The vaccine program was suspended. It was a public relations disaster. And it was a time bomb for public health. The scientists had thought universal vaccination would be at worst a chance to educate the public about the wonders of preventative medicine, the power of scientific forethought. And at best, it would stave off a pandemic, save millions of lives. But the public did not seem educated. The public seemed angry and scared. 60 Minutes interviewed the husband of a woman who had become terribly sick. I'm mad with my government because they knew the facts, but they didn't release those facts because they, if they had released them, the people wouldn't have taken And they can come out tomorrow and tell me there's going to be an epidemic and they can drop off like flies to next to me. I will not take another shot that my government tells me to take. This old 60 Minutes documentary is now on the internet. Anti-vaxxers share it all the time, again and again. That's the surviving legacy of the swine flu campaign of 1976. A couple of years after the fiasco, the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare published a report trying to figure out what exactly had gone wrong. Toward the end, the authors shared something they'd heard from a science reporter. The CDC was almost the last federal agency widely regarded by reporters and producers as a good thing. Responsible, respectable, scientific above suspicion. Now, the CDC's lost its innocence. Innocence lost. And what would replace it? Disillusion and doubt. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What? Oh my goodness! Wow! Oh my gosh! Wow! Oh my god! Radiolab. Whoa! Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. This episode started with a moon plague that never came. Instead came the Andromeda strain, the book and the film, a story about why you can't trust government scientists who do their work in secret. In 1976, that fear broke out into the real world with the swine flu pandemic that wasn't. But hold on to your face mask, because this virus is mutating one more time into the worst strain of all. In 1990, Michael Crichton, nearly 50 years old, was still on top of the world. That year, his newest book, Jurassic Park, electrified readers with yet another tale of scientific hubris wreaking havoc 
not by way of an alien biological weapon, but by way of dinosaur DNA. People hadn't forgotten Crichton's first book, though. He said he'd begun to get phone calls. People wanted him to speak at medical conventions about a new disease from a pathogen that they claimed the U.S. government had had a hand in creating, just like the fictional Andromeda strain. In late 1980 and early 1981, five gay men in Los Angeles developed a series of strange, rare infections. Their immune systems weren't working. People began to die. In September of 1982, the CDC gave the sickness a name, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, AIDS. AIDS is caused by HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus. Most people catch HIV through sex, though it can be transmitted through blood, too. It originated in primates, then jumped to humans in West Central Africa. In the 1970s, while Americans worried about moon plagues, Andromeda strains, and swine flus, HIV was already spreading, though it didn't yet have a name. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. That's NBC News and one of the earliest broadcast reports about AIDS in the United States. A lot remained unknown. There was confusion and discord. Then, in July of 1983, a newspaper in India ran on its front page an anonymous letter to the editor. AIDS, the deadly mysterious disease which has caused havoc in the U.S., is believed to be the result of the Pentagon's experiments to develop new and dangerous biological weapons. The letter writer claimed that the U.S. government had created AIDS in a lab on a U.S. base called Fort Detrick. This story is not true. It's Soviet disinformation. It came from the KGB, We know this because a former top-ranking intelligence official admitted as much years later. The Stasi called it Operation Denver. Americans came to call it Operation Infection. In 1985, the Soviets published another article promoting the myth. That same year, an East German scientist published a report supposedly proving that HIV was a man-made virus. And then the KGB really got going, telegramming instructions about the project, to their colleagues in places like Bulgaria. The goal of these measures is to create an opinion that this disease is the result of secret experiments with a new type of biological weapon by the secret services of the USA and the Pentagon that spun out of control. The disinformation had been planted, cultivated, and now it was ready to harvest. Good evening. This is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. 1987. Millions of Americans watched CBS News every night. A Soviet military publication claims the virus that causes AIDS leaked from a U.S. Army laboratory conducting experiments in biological warfare. The article offers no hard evidence, but claims to be reporting the conclusions of unnamed scientists in the United States, Britain, and East Germany. Last October, a Soviet newspaper alleged... To this day, a not small number of people believe that AIDS is a man-made disease, a U.S. government-made disease. What made so many Americans susceptible to a Soviet disinformation campaign? What had so far weakened their immunity? In the 1970s, Americans learned that the government had continued to do secret research, long after the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam in 1975. Journalists broke stories about MKUltra, the CIA program that tested psychedelics on unsuspecting military personnel, prisoners, and just ordinary citizens. These insanely unethical experiments were in the service of something even worse, drugs as a form of mind control. Then came another revelation of horrible malfeasance. For 40 years, government scientists had studied the effects of syphilis on black patients at Tuskegee by failing to treat them watching them suffer and die. The U.S. government had committed horrible wrongs. Russian disinformation works, weirdly, a lot like a Michael Crichton story. Use real facts, real places, some fake studies that look real, and then spin them out into something unreal, but, depending on your point of view, just believable. 
Fort Detrick, the lab that conspiracy theorists said manufactured AIDS? Well, there really was a Fort Detrick, and it really did work on biological weapons. It also played a central role in MKUltra. That lab continues to be in the headlines today, at least in the headlines of conspiracy theorists. We have watched the news in horror as story after story unfolded, revealing that the Army and the Central Intelligence Agency had released germs and viruses into the population to test their biological warfare capability. That's real audio from Milton William Cooper, one of history's most influential conspiracy theorists. He had a radio show called The Hour of the Time, broadcast out of his house on a hill in Arizona. He sounds like a computer. This is his version of masculine scientific authority. But this is really his voice. Cover-up has become standard operating procedure at all levels and in all departments of government. Do we dream reality, or is reality a dream? Cooper worked from the same playbook as Russian disinformation and the Andromeda strain. A seed of truth, then a great big tree of doubt. He claimed the CDC had spread AIDS during vaccine trials in the late 1970s, just after the swine flu vaccine debacle. He claimed the CDC had looked for gay volunteers as part of a plan to target undesirable elements of society. And that's crazy, sure. But then listen to this notorious recording from 1982, the first time AIDS came up in a White House press briefing. Does the president have any reaction to the announcement of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in 600, over 600 cases? And, uh, over a third of them are done. It's known as gay plague. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing. That, uh, one in every three people that get this have died, and I wonder if the president is aware of it. I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that, Larry. Do you? You didn't didn't answer my question. How do you know? Does the president, in other words, the White House looks on this as a great joke? No, I don't know anything about it, Lester. Does the president, does anybody in the White House know about this epidemic, Larry? I don't think so. I don't think there's been any. There's been no personal experience here, Lester. So yeah, there's no shortage of evidence. Homophobia played a real role in the government's negligent response. Reagan didn't say the word AIDS in public until 1985. The federal government did virtually nothing to study it, nothing to halt its spread, nothing even to warn people about it. Activists made posters that said, silence equals death. There was no cabal of secret scientists, no biological warfare, just a conspiracy of disregard for human life. And if you were gay or black or both in the 1970s and 1980s, you would know this. The government didn't seem to care if you died. This episode, this season so far, has been filled with a lot of bullshit. It's important to look at how bullshitters gained so much power in the 20th century, down to our own day. But I just want to make space for a moment for the truth about AIDS. Since the start of the AIDS pandemic, over 33 million people have died from the disease. At the end of 2019, 38 million people were still living with it. Meanwhile, all of us, all of us, have been infected with this other disease that I've been trying to tell you about. The pathogen we're trying to isolate here in the last archive. The disease of being unable any longer to know anything for sure. Operation Infection never ended. It makes all the real diseases we face worse. And Lord knows, there are real diseases. Here we want to begin with the latest coronavirus case numbers, as we often do. From Johns Hopkins University, now more than 150.5 million coronavirus infections confirmed worldwide. Deaths in the U.S. now exceeding 575,000. Real diseases tangled up with imaginary ones. A slew of COVID-19 misinformation has been going viral on social media. One video making the rounds is called Plandemic. The documentary film Plandemic came out early in the coronavirus pandemic in 2020. It was one of the most popular things on social media for a while, spreading faster than the virus. It features a scientist named Judy Mikovits. Mikovits worked at the National Cancer Institute and made her name with a paper in the journal Science that advanced suspect claims about the root cause of the mysterious chronic fatigue syndrome. 
Science had to retract the paper. It was a huge scandal. Then, Mikovits was arrested and charged with allegedly stealing information from a former employer. The charges were dropped, but for a few years, she pretty much vanished. In April 2020, just a few months into the COVID-19 pandemic, Mikovits reappeared with a book called Plague of Corruption. Then she appeared in Plandemic. She seemed to take on the scientific establishment, like a character out of a Michael Crichton novel. Her popularity exploded. I think that's because this video, it's as if all the Apollo and Andromeda and AIDS era conspiracies and stories had all been edited together into one giant ball of craziness. Think of how many people, the entire continent of Africa, you know, lost a generation as that virus was spread through because of the arrogance of a group of people, and it includes Robert Redfield, who's now the head of the CDC, right along with Tony Fauci. They were working together to take credit and make money, and they had the patents on it, and Had that not happened, millions wouldn't have died um, from HIV. Lie after lie after lie. This next stuff about Ebola? More lies. In 1999, I was working in Fort Detrick in USAMRID there, and my job was to teach Ebola how to infect human cells without killing them. Ebola couldn't infect human cells until we took it in the laboratories and talked to them. This comes straight out of the Soviets' earlier disinformation campaign. Fort Detrick, that's the same lab where the Russians said the U.S. cooked up the AIDS virus. And even at the start of the pandemic, Mikovits didn't hesitate to stoke fears about a potential vaccine. If we activate mandatory vaccines globally, I imagine these people stand to make hundreds of billions of dollars that own the vaccines. And they'll kill millions as they already have with their vaccines. There is no vaccine currently on the schedule for any RNA virus that works. Millions of people watched Plandemic. Even when the big social media platforms took it down, people kept reposting it, as if they alone could stand up to some vast conspiracy of secrecy. In the video, Mikovits encourages people not to wear masks. These are the kinds of ideas that spread like viruses and could kill like them too. In Plandemic, it's as if time stopped in some stagnant pool of the 1970s. The 1970s are over. Get past it. Michael Crichton, he never really got past it. In the year 2004, he published State of Fear, another hit, another story about science run amok. Only this time it wasn't about Vietnam or germ warfare or the perils of DNA research. It was about the science behind global warming and how Crichton didn't trust it, how he doubted it. President George W. Bush devoured the book. Crichton met him at the White House, and then he testified before the Senate. What is at issue is whether the methodology of climate science is sufficiently rigorous to yield a reliable result. It seems to me that all his life, Michael Crichton was just looking for something, anything to believe in, and not finding it. I asked the Crichton expert Joanna Radin about that. She said he'd been raised Presbyterian. But he is, as far as I know, was not um, uh, practicing, um, was not um, uh, a church-going person. But rather, he really embraced the kind of new age, um, the sort of religious new age that is dawning um, when he's in in college. But he goes on a number of um, like kind of vision quests. He learns how to read auras. But the whole time that he's doing this, he's, you can sense that he feels the emptiness, um, the failures of the secular to give um, meaning to the ways that life is being transformed in the time that he's living. You feel almost a desperateness in the way that he's seeking. Michael Crichton went on vision quests. He consulted with a parapsychologist. Like a lot of people, he was groping for the answer to what happens when God dies. All the people who deny science, who think AIDS was made in a lab, who say masks are a conspiracy, who watch wildfires burn in the West and doubt that there's something changing about the climate. All those people descend from that moment that Michael Crichton never got past. 1969. That moment when we raised science to the heavens and then watched it all come hurtling back down to Earth. Not God's. 
but humans after all. Now it's been 10,000 years, man has cried a billion tears for what he never knew. Now man's reign is through, but through eternal night, the twinkling of starlight, so very far away, maybe it's only yesterday. In the This episode was written by me, Jill Lepore, with Ben Nadef-Haffrey. It's produced by Sophie Crane-McKibben and Ben Nadef-Haffrey. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Martine Gonzalez is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines, original music by Matthias Bossy and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Our research assistants are Kimani Panthier and Lily Richman. Our foolproof players are Yoshi Amao, Raymond Blankenhorn, Matthias Bossi, Dan Epstein, Ethan Hershenfeld, Becca A. Lewis, Andrew Perella, Robert Ricotta, and Nick Saxton. The Last Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. At Pushkin, thanks to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, Maya Koenig, and Daniela Lacan. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Special thanks to Simon Leake. If you like the show, please remember to rate, share, and review. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jill Lepore. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker, so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory, and why some still believe the Earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.